The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. If you watched a movie with Shia LaBeouf and Michelle Monaghan... You watched the wrong movie. <laughs> Welcome to Recotopia, a happy home for recommended movies, TV shows, music, video games, foodstuffs, and more from three people you can definitely trust. Trustability varies by region, no guarantees implied. Here are your hosts, Chris Atkinson, Jeremy Scott, and Aaron Dyson. What you witnessed today with your coffee and biscuits is terrible. What these men would have done would have been even more terrible. Never tell a soldier that he does not know the cost of war. Hello, everybody. It's Recotopia, episode 101. Today's big recommend is I in the sky. Looking at you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm joined by Aaron Dicer, Idly host in Arenos, and Jeremy Scott. Hello, and once again, welcome, chat. Uh, glad you've come out here on a Tuesday to uh, watch us uh, watch uh, us uh, talk about movies and things of that nature. Do you guys have any small recommends? It's no big deal. It's so small and light. It's small. It's tiny. It's petite. It's wee. I do. Uh, I had a friend in college. Every time we played uh, role-playing games like uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, he would play that "Eye in the Sky" song first, and we had to listen to the oh, whole yeah. game, and then we would start. <laughs> it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, That's I had to catch on Netflix with my wife uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Chicken Run: Dawn of the Nugget. Hmm. This is um, an unexpected um, sequel to Chicken Run. Um, if uh, for some reason you are anti Mel Gibson, uh, know that he is not in this film. He has been replaced by Zachary Levi. I'm not sure if it was because he was Mel Gibson um, or it was just uh, it been 20 years. I don't know. Um, mm. But we've got Attendeway Newton, Bella Ramsey, and that looks like all the names I really recognize. But this takes place after the first movie, obviously, and they have moved to this island on a lake where they live happily ever after because apparently humans don't ever boat and go to the islands on a lake which i would certainly do and uh they have a kid this is the titular nugget uh they have a child um and the child decides to go leave the island and explore the world um makes a friend ends up in a chicken truck that's going to a chicken nugget producing facility where they put collars on the chickens that make them really stupid because chickens that don't have fear taste better. <laughs> um, I am not convinced this is quite as good as the first one, but it's Ardman. So there's always bits of magic. Uh, and there is a visual gag in this movie when they are trying to break in to this high-tech facility that is one of the best gags I have ever seen in my entire life i paused the movie i was laughing so hard at this gag and i don't want to tell you what it is but it involves 
a, a security eye scan. And I am shocked nobody has ever thought to do this gag before. It was so funny. Uh, it makes the whole movie for me. But I think there's plenty of other smiles and laughs um, mm. here for you. If you enjoy Chicken Run, if you enjoy the Ardman stuff, I think you're going to have a really good time with Chicken Run. Dawn of the Nugget. I had been hearing about this sequel for so long that I'm shocked that it's out. Like, <laughs> like it, it feels like it's been like two or three years. It feels like that I first heard about the sequel to this. So I, I'll need to see that. I like the first chicken run. So, yeah, I would not go into this expecting the first chicken run, which I think is an all timer. I, I think that movie is, is just incredible. Um, but it is a ton of fun. Jeremy's I back everything. Jeremy said, this is a, this is a lot of fun, especially after the first 15, 20 minutes. Like it takes a little bit of exposition and stuff to get going. And then it's just like, it's, it's a, it's a ton of fun. It reminded so. me weirdly of, uh, um, Muppets from Space? What is the Muppet Space one where Gonzo gets kidnapped and they have to go to this high-tech facility to rescue him? Um, anyway, Jeffrey Tambor's yeah. in... I, I, think that is, I think that is Muppets from Space, isn't it? It's Muppets from know. Space. Yeah. Pigs uh, in Space! <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. I guess it's my turn. Uh, I'm going to do a small recommend for a TV show that is uh been running in the uk for 16 series it is called Ooh. taskmaster mm. um they do two series a year <clears throat> and the series started off at five episodes they are now 10 episodes a series uh this is greg davies a great comedian from the uk and uh, alex holm is his uh co-host and they make this show their banter the way they play off of each other and the fact that it's a British style panel show, which we don't really have a lot of these that rise to prominence in America, where you basically just every season, it's a different set of comedians or, or funny celebrities or whatever that are just a part of the show. And because everybody on the show is so, has such a great sense of humor, is so clever that like you just can't help but have these amazing, fun, hilarious moments that happen. Now, the conceit of the show is that each of these people are given the same task. So let's say the task is to, uh, you know, fit this stuffed camel through the smallest hole possible. And then they are left to determine how can I do that? What are the rules? Those kind of things. So somebody will just look for you know, the opening between the oven door and the oven and try to, you know, squeeze it through there. Somebody else will cut the camel entirely apart and try to squeeze it through, you know, a straw. Somebody else will try to blend the camel with water and pour it uh, through something, you know, like, so it's just a matter of there's this cleverness to it where you also are going, oh, how would I best accomplish this task? And then there's just the fun and the hilarity. And uh, we started watching this. It is available on YouTube. There's an official Taskmaster channel here in America. Because we're not in the UK, you can watch all the full episodes uh, of every single series is available mm. on YouTube. And it's in very convenient season playlists. Um, so it was very easy just to let it run. It's a fun thing to just let run while you're working on whatever and uh, just kind of tuning in. Uh, so we had a great time this past weekend. We watched the first five series hmm. uh, of, of this show and just laughed and laughed and laughed and had a good time. So Between I, uh, that and that only Connect show that I was talking about mm, several months ago, mm -hmm. I get the sense that this is all British television. It's all like all their shows are funny people 
commenting, commenting and being funny while doing mundane things. And they and they jump from show to show. I'm too. sure they like do. You'll see the same people on Taskmaster, and then they'll it's jump like, over to. What's yeah. wild is we had a, we had this with Hollywood Squares, but it just wasn't ever as consistently funny as this British stuff that I've seen, <laughs> and it <laughs> turned into. I don't know. I don't know what it turned into, but it wasn't funny by the they, end. Uh, they attempted an American version of the show. Uh, they uh, did one season, and it completely tanked, and apparently no one watched it. And uh, my uh, my brother, who introduced me to the show, uh, said that they just didn't understand the tone. He tried to watch some of it, and they just he said it just didn't understand how it was supposed to work. But huh. um, so yeah. But right. anyways, Taskmaster is a blast. I recommend Taskmaster. Mm. Blastmaster. All right. Um, so I, a few episodes ago, I, uh, I recommended, uh, Mr. Ballin, the YouTube channel, and I had heard the story, uh, through Mr. Ballin, uh, before the, before Netflix, uh, made a docu-series about it. It's American Nightmare. Mm. Um, and, uh, this is a three episode, uh, mini doc mini doc basically it's i mean i, I they should have just made this a two-hour movie but i guess netflix is always we got to break it up we got to make episodes out of it but um the premise of this is going to be familiar to a lot of you who ever follow true crime stories and things of that nature the uh a man by the name of aaron quinn calls the police and says uh yeah my uh girlfriend has been kidnapped and I have uh, I have a, a ransom and blah 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 that I have to pay and all this other stuff, but it had been hours after the kid alleged kidnapping had even happened, and uh, and so uh, most of you who have ever heard this kind of story before are going to immediately be like, oh yeah, boyfriend killed killed his girlfriend, and and then now they're going the cops are going to have to find her, and so like uh, uh, this is one of those series though that to tell you any more at this point is to is to like ruin some of the just like absolute ridiculousness that this story involves now it's also a very it's it's also a tragic story and i want to warn some viewers that there is some trigger stuff in here um uh concerning uh events that happen in this and you may want to check up on that before you watch it but uh and netflix does a pretty good job before the episodes telling you what you're about to hear this is one of those you've never heard this before the story uh of this is one of those that's just it's so out there that it really it's really one of those stranger than fiction type of stories so uh, I will, I would highly recommend this, especially if you are a true crime person, uh, because this has so many twists in it that it's, uh, it, it's just absolutely insane. My wife watched this, um, mm -hmm. all in one day. I think it's like three episodes. Um, and I came in, you know, periodically and watched bits and pieces of it. And I can attest that at times it felt like I was watching an entirely different documentary in terms of what had happened since the last time I was in the room um, mm -hmm. and yeah it's an insane story and she really enjoyed it so uh, I will yeah and, and my and wife one, back this up and one thing I can say about this is that is that uh, you know one thing that this does is that you know I understand the 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 position of the cops in this because they've heard these stories a million times so they're obviously going to be you know they're going to have certain biases about these type of things but the it, 
the it it it, it kind of it it's it's terrible if if you're in this kind of situation and you just cannot uh you cannot get you cannot tell say anything that sounds reasonable whatsoever and uh you're always going to be hounded by uh the people in charge of the investigation about it so anyway highly recommend and um and uh yeah go we'll go on to the big recommend i'm fine i'm fine it's just that you're so big it's so huge it's a good rule but this is bigger than rules it's bigger on the inside is it i noticed which is eye in the sky jeremy's choice so take it away jeremy I am the eye in the sky. Um, I uh, I like this movie. I think this mm, is a mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. this is a thinker, and uh, and it's very uh, gone, baby, gone. In that, I believe viewers can find themselves on either side of the central argument at various points throughout the movie. Uh, but we open with a quote from a man I'd never heard of, and whose name I can't pronounce. I believe it's Astrakhan. I don't know, uh, but he says, in truth, or in war, truth is the first casualty. And that feels very true and very timely today. Uh, then we go straight to Nairobi, and we uh, meet a family that's starting their day, and mom is baking bread, and father is repairing a hula hoop for the daughter. The daughter's name is Aaliyah, um, and I think throughout my notes, I start referring to her as that. Um, <clears throat> and then we pan up, pull back, and get a sense of the whole neighborhood that they're in. It's obviously not America. Um, I'm not sure if the screen says we're in Nairobi at that point or if we just find out later through dialogue. And in a moment, I want to point out, we do see uh, the father hide some school books uh, when a customer comes to have the bike fixed. Then we move, we move around a lot here in the beginning of this movie. Then we move over to meet Helen Mirren, who lives with a snoring husband, yet still sleeps in the same bed with him for some reason. Um, <laughs> and she starts her day super early before sunrise. And we see her exit the house and go to a, a finished garage that kind of looks like a military office where she gets an email that one of her operatives in Nairobi has been killed by local militants. Then we jump to Vegas at 8 p.m. Aaron Paul's alarm is going off, uh, which imagine night shift just sucks, man. I've done it a couple of times. <laughs> it just sucks. Uh, he heads into work and he's a drone pilot. And before we can learn more about him, we jump back to Helen Mirren and we see her entering a super secure British military command center. And she calls Alan Rickman on the phone, and he is the general that is directly over her. Then Aaron Paul gets to work, and we get our first convergence of these stories, uh, where Helen Mirren's Colin, Colin, Colonel Powell, (laughs) (laughs) gives them a a digital briefing message for the mission. Um, And the mission is to use a drone to monitor this house in Nairobi, where they suspect some terrorists are going to meet. She quite crucially says, this is a mission to capture, not kill, your job is to be there, eye in the sky. And then the credits roll and the movie is over. Um, <laughs> we then get a little bit of a look at the assets they have on the ground. Uh, there is a hummingbird-like camera surveilling this house. Uh, and they have a couple of agents manning a van nearby. And uh, we also get back to Aaliyah and her mom's bread is done being cooked. And so they send her out and she sets up a table to sell the bread. We then cut to the general who's in a toy store. This is Alan Rickman. I don't remember his character's name. I'll just call him the general. He's the only general in the movie. Um, and he's shopping for a doll for presumably his granddaughter. Could be his daughter. Um, I'm not sure they explicitly say. But he di- he buys a Time to Sleep doll when he was supposed to buy the Baby Moves doll. So mm-hmm. he sends an underling out to exchange the dolls and then sits down with a few people in suits and prepares to go after the day's mission. But then, suddenly, there are two new terrorist recruits they are tracking that are brought outside this house they're surveilling with a woman 
and the woman drives them away. They can't completely ID the woman, but they believe it to be a woman named Danford, who is a British national wife of a top terrorist target. So they have the drone follow that car, which leads to the home of an arms dealer uh, in a restricted neighborhood that is apparently controlled by the militia. So they decide to have one of the on-site van agents go on foot near the arms dealer's house to surveil with a Beetle drone, which has a limited range, but that will put that operative in danger because he is now out on the streets instead of in the van. We do see uh, Aaliyah later being scolded for playing in front of a customer, and her father says, these people around us are fanatics, and you should only play when it's just the family around, um, which she says now, and he said yes. And then we um, watch the, true, the two drone pilots, Steve and Carrie, back in Vegas, and they watch Aaliyah dance in the hula hoop and smile. The British ministers debate killing Danford, but it's rejected. And they find out her husband is also in there and order the beetle cam to check out the other rooms of the house. It is at this point they discover someone in a bedroom building suicide vests, and a discussion is had to consider upping the rules of engagement from capture to kill. That will be the central conflict for the rest of the film. Legal tells Powell to refer up to the Attorney General. Oh, this is going to be a common theme, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And a debate be- begins inside the General's office because the Attorney General is in there. Um, the lone female official asks, has there ever been a British drone strike on a friendly country that is not at war? And they all fall silent, basically letting you know, um, no, there hasn't been. Uh, as they continue to debate, Powell calls the pilot of the drone herself, that's Steve, to try and persuade him to be on her side. Uh, but he asks if the U.S. government knows that there is a U.S. citizen in this house. And she says that they do. He doesn't seem very convinced. But he and his co-pilot begin preparing the drone to be ready to fire the Hellfire missiles. Back to the boardroom, one of the ministers exercises his right to refer up to his boss, the foreign minister. This frustrates both the general and Colonel Powell, who want to fire the missile now. Um, They hate the red tape. Uh, It takes a bit, but once they track down the Game of Thrones foreign minister guy, he won't say yes to the strike without the U.S. Secretary of State's authorization. They track that guy down in Beijing at a table tennis event, and he unequivocally supports the strike. Very, very American, this guy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The order goes down the line, but before the missile can be fired, more bread is done baking, and Aaliyah returns to the table in the street, which we find out is right outside this terrorist target house. So Steve, the pilot, stops the launch by doing basically the only thing he can in this position. As the person releasing the weapon, uh, he calls for a new collateral damage estimate, considering that the girl is now there selling bread. Now, in my opinion, all he's doing here is buying time. Uh, I don't think he expects anything from a collateral damage estimate to change the minds of his superiors. I think he's just hoping someone will buy the bread by the time it takes them to make that decision. Powell asks the Beetle drone operator to literally go buy all the bread from Aaliyah so that she'll leave. This is pretty clever uh, Mm -hmm. and a very, like, low-tech solution. Uh, But it's super unsafe for him to be out there. And as he's buying all the bread, he's recognized by one of the militia members. He throws the bread at the guy and makes a run for it and then gets insanely lucky uh, in that he is able to hide under a lifted truck uh, on blocks, and uh, they don't find him. And uh, yeah, I found that pretty lucky. But very, I don't. Very taken three. Yes, taken three. <laughs> <laughs> but the girl has Aaliyah has picked up the bread and is going to sell all that again because she's super smart, yo. Like 
she's going to make double on this bread. She already got his money. Anyway, this sets off a new bout of legal debates as to whether or not the mission is still legal. The British Attorney General says something to the effect of, if it's, this is actually a great line, it's one thing to fire the missile while the street is empty and hope that it remains that way until the missile hits. It's something else entirely to know this girl will at worst be fatally injured and at best be seriously injured. Uh, a lot more back and forth and Sir Jorah of food poisoning punts and tells them that they need clearance from the prime minister. The prime minister says, do whatever you can to minimize casualties, which is essentially uh, a bureaucrat's way of saying, I'm not taking the blame for any of this. Uh, meanwhile, Colonel Paul Powell asks for a recalculation of the collateral damage estimate if they were to target the missile to a different point of the house. And she basically steamrolls this underling guy into giving her a 45% casualty for the girl if they move the missile to the other side of the house. Um, it's, I don't think it's explicitly stated, but I got the impression that that's not true and that she basically said, hey, I'm your superior. Give me what I want. Yeah. It's pretty uncomfortable to watch. Uh, mm -hmm. The Beetle Drone guy comes out of hiding and still on the good team, gives some money to a kid kicking a ball and says, go buy this girl's bread a few blocks away. Buy it all and I'll give you all this money. And we intercut with Steve, the pilot, Carrie, the co-pilot, running down their checklist for missile launch. They see the boy run up, buy the bread and run off. But the girl doesn't make it away before the explosion. Um, and she's seen lying in the street. She does move a little bit, but they have to move the camera to go ID the bodies of the terrorists to make sure that they killed them. One of them is still alive and moving. So they immediately decide to fire another missile. Aaliyah's father comes out and finds her mother right behind him, and the second missile hits. Father picks up Aaliyah, begs an approaching militant vehicle, and the soldiers have a moment of compassion remove the gun from the back of their vehicle and put the girl and her parents in there and rush them to the hospital. Um, before the general leaves the boardroom, the lady minister scolds him for a disgraceful uh, mission. And he snaps back with a nice little speech, essentially ending with never tell a soldier that he does not know the cost of war. Mm -hmm. um, he leaves and we see his underling hand him the doll and he walks down the hall and I love and am disturbed by the cutting from the general going home with his dolly to the girl in the hospital dying. And then we get Powell driving home in the rain. She doesn't seem super bothered. Steve and Carrie, super bothered, being coldly told by their boss, need you back in 12 hours. Uh, and then the closing credits, um, I think, uh, reveal what the movie's main point is as we see Aaliyah dancing in slow motion with the hula hoop before the credits roll. The end, Eye in the Sky. If you watched a movie with Shia LaBeouf and Michelle Monaghan, you watched the wrong movie. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys think of Eye in the Sky? <laughs> yes, I did. I was looking for eagle eye everywhere when uh, <laughs> you mentioned this. Um, okay, so yeah, I've been thinking about this movie for quite some time since I watched it. Um, I think it was presented as a sort of trolley problem, but it's a different kind of trolley problem because instead of you knowing that there's five people on one track and one on the other track, there's sort of a cloudy haze where those mm -hmm. five people are. And there's, a, and there is definitely one person on the one track. So uh, I found myself 
for a while and I don't know where I've ended up, but I was on the side of that woman inside the, the room with Jeremy Northam and Alan Rickman who kept saying, no, you shouldn't do this because you know, the, the collateral damage, the innocent lives that are going to be lost is not worth doing this. And of course, the the argument being that the suicide bombers are going to do way more, more damage than we ever will mm. um and i kept thinking about this like okay so that is obviously a a, a really difficult problem to work out like do we uh, since we're going to kill this one innocent person trying to or many innocent people trying to kill these three very bad people or whatever five i guess was total in that in that house but um, uh, you know, it, it, do, they're going to kill so much more and whatever. Oh my God, man. I, I was like the things that they have in this movie. I know that there's a, a, a tremendously complex political structure going on here because we have Kenyan forces. We have Americans doing the drone. We have, it's a British operation. Yep. They, they have to keep going to the higher ups and talking, uh, you know, and, and tell lawyers and all this other stuff. There's all this red tape you got to go through to do a kind of do this kind of thing. But as I was looking at all the technology they had in this movie, I was like, man, don't, don't you have any way of doing this without killing innocent people? That's what I was sitting there thinking the whole time. And I, and I understand that there's a big political reality here that they've set, but man, with all the stuff that I saw that they had under their command, I was like, this is just fucking evil to blow up a house with, uh, you know, with innocent people around just because you've been waiting six years to get these people and you're just like tired of it basically is what it's come down to. But you have, you've had all this intelligence about the meeting itself and who's going to be there and all that. You can't find a better time to do. I, 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 now Alan Rickman does his level best at the very end with that quote saying, do never tell a soldier the cost of war and all that, especially in the way he, He's so, it could have been the war. He could have most, been the most evilest person in this movie. And I've been like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Don't <laughs> tell the soldier. Don't tell a soldier the cost of war, man. He's so good. Um, there was a, so I, I really like this movie. I'm going to say though, it was, I nearly started laughing at how many times <laughs> something would happen where it would change the course of things. And like, so like, you know, like oh we'll buy the bread and then he buys it oh i noticed i know who this person is i kicked him out of here once and then he throws the bread at the guy and then he runs off and then they're like okay well that's cool well at least at least the girl's not selling the bread anymore and then she goes and gathers up the bread and puts <laughs> it back on the table to, to double dip and uh and then like and then it's like oh well he got that kid to buy the bread all right she's done and there's 30 seconds get out of there and she's like <laughs> Eh, I'll take my time taking this blanket off the table and, uh, you know, all this stuff. If you guys ever watched Mr. Show back in the day, there is a sketch where like a guy comes into a, like a small store and asks for change for a dollar. 
And the guy behind the counter is so handcuffed by not being able to make his own decisions that he goes and calls his boss. And then his boss has to call his boss and his boss calls his boss. And it gets all the way to the president of the United <laughs> States by the end of it. That's what, that's what's so funny. Every time somebody brings something up, there's a point where Aaron Paul is like, I need a new uh, collateral dan- damage ass- assessment on this thing. And, and Harold, you can see the look on Helen Mirren's face like, God damn it. What do we have to do to shoot this missile already? And, um, and so like it's, it's, it has, it's, it's a very serious. And I know that they, that these guys have to deal with this kind of decision every day, but, and which is sad to think about every day. Cause you know, by the end of it, they're like, they tell Aaron Paul and the woman from the great, uh, who's, who's L Fanning's friend in the great, uh, they tell them, uh, be back in 12 hours. Uh, and yeah. it's like oh it's just kind of like how uh uh, uh the uh short term 12 ended last last week almost yeah you know yeah. start all over again the cycle just happens again and again but um so yeah i really really enjoyed this this is a this is another one of those you got a lot of like just heavy hitters in here a lot of good actors the situation at first is you know the at first the situation isn't complex at all there's no suicide bombers at all and right. i was like wondering what's the what is the debate here like they they want she wanted to strike before the suicide bombers even oh, yeah. popped so uh but but then they show that up and then that's where you start having to think okay do i what what would i do in this situation and i think it's something well worth mulling over and uh yeah i really enjoyed it i really liked it you say before you go aaron you said sure. something about nearly laughing there's a moment I marked where near the end where Jeremy Northam says the legal argument is that we could wait. We need not wait. And the military argument is that we should not wait. And the other guy goes, <laughs> exactly. And I wrote, it's almost Abbott and Costello at that moment. There is a version of this movie, if uh Inarucci made it, um, that could be a comedy. And I don't I don't mean to make light of what happens in this movie i was thinking this exact thing if it, okay. if this was an ianucci if this was an ianucci thing this would have been a comedy and yeah. and he would have written some very Biting. cutting and fear dialogue in this yeah. in this thing yeah uh but but it's it's razor thin like as serious as this movie is there's a, an element to it that's like, oh, come on, yeah, you yeah. know, that gets to you. So Yeah, okay. Sorry to cut you off, Aaron. Go ahead. No, you're good. Uh, it really is a, it's not a comedy of errors. It's a tragedy of errors. You know, like mm-hmm. it's a, it's, it's kind of the same feel of what we're used to seeing with those kind of comedies where, uh oh, and another thing has gone wrong. So yeah, I totally <laughs> yeah. felt that same thing. I, I love this movie. I think this is a an extremely well-crafted movie. And I want to start there. There's, believe me, plenty I want to talk about with the f- philosophical stuff, with the conundrum stuff. I, you know, I, I love that kind of discussion. But even beyond that, the technical nature of this movie is so cool for, for a few reasons. Number one, the juxtapositions this movie makes on a consistent basis uh, are really, really smart. The movie starts with two different types of unawareness. One is a little girl dancing in a hula hoop in her own yard, completely oblivious and unaware 
that there is evil right around the corner and that a missile is coming, whatever. And then it cuts to, um, I believe, Helen Mirren in bed with uh, her significant other, whatever, and he is snoring, completely oblivious mm. to the decision she's going to have to make you know, later on in the day and kind of a representation for most of us. Just kind of sleeping and snoring and going on with our day-to-day -day lives, completely not having to worry that there are people with their hands on triggers making decisions that cost lives. Like that's, you know, just something we don't think about that we don't have to worry about. And I just I love that this movie does that over and over and over again. The way it portrays these characters. For instance, the uh, American Secretary of State, um, he is very specifically and purposefully at a table tennis match at a ping pong match because he is just volleying it back to them he's like what are you doing i don't need like the the places this movie puts its characters are representative of who they are the the foreign secretary who is indisposed because of mm. intestinal issues yeah. he is a weak yeah. man he is he is sickly he doesn't know how to make this decision like it's just it's really smart about how it makes its characters almost a metaphor for themselves mm. um throughout and it does does those kind even the rickman character with the doll choice you know it's kind of a commentary on how his his real life is so separate from you know this and how he's able to compartmentalize and go okay you know it's a math equation for me this is yeah. how it works um and i just I, I really love that the movie is is smart like that um mm -hmm. because i think that that uh that really helps on a subconscious level if not a conscious one um i i think there is an interesting question that this movie asks on both sides that is part of the conundrum that I don't think we've talked about quite a bit uh, yet, which is the age of the potential innocent victim. Mm. There, there is this idea of because it's a let's a little girl. It's like mm. what else? Maybe have her holding a puppy. That's the only way we get to a more like how can you let this happen kind of thing. If that's a middle aged man. Are we feeling the same feelings? And how do we feel about the fact that we're not for the middle-aged man who is also innocent, unaware, and you know, like how does that how does our perspective change when we think well, of the cost of life? And by the way, sorry to interject no, here, but this this was a part of the movie that I was I was one I was actually thinking about a lot was we're worried about this one girl and there's probably other children ev elsewhere that we're not mm. even seeing in the, in the frame. And there's, and then there's, of course, there's other people, other innocent people that are in there and we're not worried about them whatsoever. And that's what I kept coming back to. And the, you know, the going for the 45%, you know, damage assessment and everything. Mm. I was like, Oh my God, guys, we're, <laughs> you know we're just putting we're just just deciding that these lives really don't matter whatsoever so anyway yeah yeah uh one of the other technical things i really love i love the soundtrack in this i love how there's this like um thrumming digital like pressure that's happening underneath the music and then on top are these middle eastern instruments mm. that are playing a different melody like it's 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 a really interesting thing that they're doing with this uh, the background score uh, in this movie as well. I love the way this movie uh, gives us insight into modern warfare, into modern technology and how that impacts things. I do think the technology in this, without being an expert, feels a little futuristic to me. Do we, like those Beatles, especially in 2008, like that seems, I don't know, if you have those, what, I mean, what else do you need? What other surveillance do you need? Uh, oh, like thanks. it's, it's 2015, wild. 2015, not 2008. But oh, sorry, sorry. 2015. My bad. 
it's what's fascinating is that it it does feel futuristic, but not that far out of reach because yeah. we are making tinier and tinier drones. I, it feels plausible to me. I did. I I'm just mean the machinery nerd, so of the little wings. There, there are not hummingbirds in Kenya. I Googled that. And so <laughs> that camera should stand out more than it does. <laughs> but, and, why, um, and why do you have to be closer for the bug than the hummingbird? Like the, it's like smaller, the, so it has <laughs> a smaller battery. Oh. I don't know. It's the, the battery? Okay. Okay. That's it's fine. The, We're not... We're not doing this. That's it's fine. Cool, <laughs> it's cool tech. It is really yeah. cool tech. It is super cool tech. But I do like the stuff that you can imagine even more than that, that is actual idea of how warfare has changed, that it's two people sitting in a shed in the middle of the desert in America that are, you know, actually playing a like a real life video game that has real life consequences. And that is modern warfare. And it's and not it's not you know, enlisting tens of thousands mm. of humans to go march on a beach, you know, like it's just, it's completely different. Well, um, I think that what's fascinating to me about those little shacks is that they are laid out exactly like a cockpit. Like we're, we're going to make you feel mm -hmm. like you're in a plane, even though you're in a shack. And then one thing the movie does just a couple of times is give us a sense of scale. There are dozens of those shacks. We're just seeing one story with one pilot and his direct commanding officer. But they're not the only drone pilots. There's other there's a bunch of them out there in those buildings probably yeah. having the same dilemma. Uh, Chris, I was glad you mentioned Rickman's performance. I think he's so good here. Um, I, I, too... Even even as a very staunch pacifist, which I should mention that that makes the conundrum here a little uh, a little different for me. I, I pacifism is something I have grown into over my years uh, in a very real way. And uh, even as a staunch pacifist, you listen to Rickman talk about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, and you're just going, yeah, yeah, Alan, uh, mm -hmm. kill people, go ahead, kill people. Yeah. I'm I'm with you. Uh, and it's 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 really convincing. Um, and I think there is something in us that does the math, that likes to do the math. And that's why the conundrum is interesting, because we think of it as a simple math problem. We think of it as, you know, yes, this one little girl dies, but it saves that suicide vest from, you know, killing hundreds. But what we don't think of in, th in this trolley problem is that if you take out the trolley that has, uh, you know, one person, um, in this trolley problem, that trolley then has five or six other trolleys that then get radicalized to go to go back. And then that creates mm. 10 trolleys that come back the other way, which creates 20 trolleys that go back the other. So like, you know, this in this kind of uh, moral conundrum, at least from my pacifistic point of view, you don't realize you're creating more violence, even with the what you think is minimizing violence. That is like th they briefly, briefly mentioned this conundrum yep. in the movie. And I'm and that's the 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 part that you can't possibly know in this is how many people look at this and go oh my brother was killed in this american drone tech and and you know yeah. and there's nobody here for me and i'm under the rule of this militia here or whatever i'm angry i'm ready to you know to get back at those that uh, that uh you know that uh, did so much to my life and everything and that is another yet another thing right like yes you may have uh, only killed 25 people other than the the ones that you intended to but mm. now you now you've created an exponential problem with other people getting radicalized and 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 mm -hmm. going off and doing stuff and killing thousands tens of thousands more or whatever so 
Yeah. 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 Violence begets violence. It's, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if that violence is, you think the lesser of two violences, you're still committing violence, which then creates the exponential increase of, of more violence. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, 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 uh, it is, it is a conundrum. And like I said, I can find my way to empathy for all of the views that people are espousing, but uh, mm -hmm. I've just come to a conclusion in my life that, you know, wherever that line is for, for others, for me, it's, you know, I, I, I will not. Yeah, uh, so now you, everybody, if violence. you ever meet Aaron, you can slap him across the face as many times as you want. And he there you will go. Not do anything. That's the, that's the moral of this podcast. That's the lesson you should take. I think amongst mm -hmm. anything else, that's the lesson you should take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your pacifism <laughs> and immediately go to violence. Um, okay. Well, uh, time for the super secret double feature. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Shh, be very, very quiet. Secret, what secret? A dirty little secret. i tell you something I've never told anyone. Aaron, what did you come up with? I went with uh, a movie that I think checks the most boxes for the th the the things that I uh, found in this movie. It is uh, the reason 2008 was in my brain, I believe, because I think this is 2008. Uh, I went with Body of Lies. Um, this is uh, Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio. I believe it's a Ridley Scott film. Um, and... Uh, Actually, it's it's a the film is a little more inert than it should be. I wish this movie were like a little better. The tension here doesn't quite work through the the entire thing, but it deals with a lot of the same because Russell Crowe is doing this from a distance. Leonardo is the person on the ground. In fact, uh, this movie uh, also starts with an opening quote. Uh, this one actually dealing with the conundrum that we were just talking about. Uh, which is, I and the public know what all school children learn. Those whom evil is done do evil in return. Uh, and it really deals with those conundrum issues of the ideas of violence begets violence. How do you deal with, you know, stopping violence without being violent? Um, this is a little more action-y than Eye in the Sky, for sure. Like it wants, I mean, it's Ridley Scott, so it wants to go uh, for that. But I think a lot of the the technology is there. There's a lot of drone shots in this movie. It's Oscar Isaac's first big role, uh, by mm. the way, which, you know, I actually watched a little bit of this again last night to kind of refresh myself on it. Um, and it was interesting seeing Oscar Isaac. The first time I watched this, I'd had no clue who he was. Um, and so, yeah, Body of Lies would be, uh, I think, a good double feature um, with mm. Eye in the Sky. Fascinating. So, yeah. Um, the, the, the whole thing about the, uh, drone shooting the missile and trying to get the proper tar target for a meeting reminded me of clear and present danger the most, mm -hmm. uh, out, out of all this. Um, now clear and present danger is not exactly like this. There's not a lot of decisions being made like this movie or anything, but the bombing of that house is a central part of that. Uh, of that movie and um you know it's it's there it's planning on a drug cartel meeting 
uh, happening at this house. The missile gets thrown, gets shot, but there's nobody, nobody that they want to kill is in the house. They're they're They haven't arrived yet. Uh, and then that leads to uh, Joaquin D. D. Alameda uh, going in and like trying to figure out. There's a great scene in Clear and Present Danger where both he and Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan are at their various command posts trying to figure out who shot this missile and finding out that there's no bomb fragments and all this other stuff. And like they both come to the same conclusion that, you know, that this was an illegal <laughs> uh, uh, shot or whatever. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's what it reminded me of. I thought of also zero dark 30 just because mm. of the tactical, uh, uh, things that are going on in this, in this movie, Jessica Chastain is essentially the Helen Mirren, although maybe not, I don't know. She's probably just as bloodthirsty as Helen Mirren <laughs> in this movie, but, but Jessica Chastain has been trying to do this for years in this movie. Can't get any, can't get anybody to, to, to bite on her in for her or Intel whatsoever. And, um, so yeah, that was another one that I thought of. I was, uh, I almost brought it up in conversation, but I was scared. One of you picked it, but this movie made me think about minority report in terms of, yeah stopping mm -hmm. crime before it happens sure. and the morality mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, that's um, a good one. A really um, good one. All right, next week's big recommend, I believe it falls to Chris this week. What you got for it us? Does. Okay, boy. Uh, as I said, man, once this starts getting into like decades where I've actually watched a ton of movies, this is going to start getting harder and harder and harder. So I have, uh, so now we're in the 1980s comedies. Uh, there are a lot of great comedies in the 1980s. There's also a lot of comedies that were inspired by Animal House. And of course, they're just awful. There's a lot of beach comedies that came out during this, the, 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 these, uh, these years. Uh, there are a handful of comedies that I feel like not very many people talk about. And this would have been a perfect time for Top Secret. Of course, we've already done Top Secret. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But I, I, I mulled over many movies. Like, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka and The Burbs and A Fish Called Wanda. And, um, and just a, I, it must have been like 10 that I was, I was uh, shuffling through. I ended up on another Zucker Brothers Abrams production, and that is Ruthless People. Uh, the, uh, this is one, this is probably their only, um, this is probably their only like non slapstick, non parody, uh, movies that they ever made. And, uh, but I, I love this. This is one of those, uh, this is one of those movies where <laughs> I, I love the premise immediately from the very beginning, Danny DeVito, we know that he hates his wife, wants to kill his wife played by Bette Midler. And he's about to go and do the deed, but then two people kidnap her and tell him that if he doesn't pay like an extravagant ransom of some sort, that, that, uh, they're going to kill her. And, and if you contact the cops or the media, we're going to kill her. And the very next scene is a bunch of cops and media coming up to the door. <laughs> um, and this is a, a ton of, of people in this movie. Uh, uh, Judge, uh, you have, uh, I think it's Judge Reinhold. You have Judge Reinhold. You have Helen Slater, uh, Supergirl, for a lot wow. of you out there. You have uh, Bill Pullman in his first role, I believe, is in this in this movie. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this is one where just like, it's like every, every it's the plotting of it, the decisions that the characters have to make and what people know and what they don't know turns into a nice farcical situation. And I think 
a lot of people will, will like it. Now, unfortunately, this is a movie that you can only rent from service services, and uh, I don't know if there's a free service anywhere that uh, plays it in your area, but uh, yeah, uh, it, we've got you, you can go to the usual places. All right, excellent. Ruthless people. Uh, I haven't seen this in 35 years. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe I told you guys in the Slack, I don't remember anything about it. So it'll mm. be like going in for the first time. So, um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. I believe we have time for a couple of questions. Question. Question. I got something to say. I want the truth. I am listening. Movie you love. This is not a properly grammar phrased question. Movie you love <laughs> with a score you hate or movie you hate with a score you love. Man, I tell you what. They had, they came out with that re-release of the abyss that came out in theaters and I went to watch it. I had, I had not seen it since it was released and I, and, and back in the day, I did not like this movie. So I, so I gave it, you know, a 30 plus years to, to, you know, maybe now that I'm in a different place, I can watch the abyss and enjoy it. I did not, I did not enjoy the abyss whatsoever, but I'll tell you what. The Alan Silvestri score that's in it is fucking awesome. In it. And every time that I hear the score in that movie, I'm like, oh, I'm watching a really good movie. And it's, I didn't like it. So uh, that's 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 going to be my answer. For this. <laughs> I like it. Aaron? Uh, that is a, a great answer. Um, I have a movie that I despise. If, in fact, it may be the movie I hate the most of all movies ever made, and it has an amazing <laughs> score. Uh, it is M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Last Airbender. Uh, mm-hmm. The score to that movie is actually really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. But I despise that movie for many reasons. So it's my go-to answer for did, this did question. Did Howard do that one? I believe was so. That? I was yeah, just I was just Shyamalan. trying to look it up to confirm, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have a good answer here, but I went with the Sting Two, <laughs> which I remember being terrible. I love the Sting, um, but I love ragtime music, and so they just kept that theme in the sequel, um, like the Entainer and all those songs from the Sting. <laughs> I've never seen the Sting Two. Oh, it's bad. I've never seen it. It's bad. Yeah. Well, that's because you don't have any of the principles in it. Nobody returned. They just yeah wrote a whole new story. <clears throat> anyway, that was my answer. Um. I think it's interesting that I went the we all went the love route, didn't we? We love yeah. the score, but hate the movie. We couldn't. Right. Question gave us the option to answer in reverse, but we I couldn't think of. A, I could not think of a movie I love with a bad score, which well, is an interesting I will thing say, to say. I, it, just off the top of my head, the movie Goldeneye is really good, and the score is atrocious oh, in that okay. movie. It's a they're trying to do some like electronic, like uh, up to date kind of thing, and then it's fucking bad man it's terrible oh it's no good i bet you could go back to a lot of 80s movies that are good and the Mm. score is going to be that casio keyboard (laughs) (laughs) i've been watching a lot of movies in the late 80s early 90s recently and it was a thing and you go back and it just it feels the melodrama in the score just feels so real and it's like is this parody i don't think they mean it to be parody yeah, so yeah right. that's probably a good answer it existed perfectly in just a very tiny window and then mm-hmm. became parody of itself yeah all right let's do another one uh you have the opportunity to show the entire world two movies one for reasons of entertainment one for enlightenment purposes mm. what movies are you choosing <clears throat> Oh, mine are very, very basic. I mean, I'm going to show people Back to the Future for entertainment pers- purposes. I I don't know 
if there's one movie that just appeals to so many people like that movie does um it's got everything in it you know comedy action great performances all of that i think it's it's the perfect kind of entertainment movie for the enlightenment purposes i'm going to show schindler's list i i don't know if there's a more one of the more heartbreaking scenes in that movie is is when they go in and raid the ghettos and ray fine says that this uh, that this uh, community was responsible for all this ama- amazing history and art and everything. And that ends here today is what he says. I, that's, I mean, that whole movie is heartbreaking of course, but, um, but uh, I, I think that, w- I think that one would be my enlightenment pick. Uh, I like Chris have chosen my favorite movie of all time for the uh, entertainment one uh, singing in the rain uh, mm-hmm. is uh, I just think a, a joyful fun thing to watch from beginning to end um, and translates to a lot of different uh, people. Um, so yeah, I would go with singing in the rain. The uh, enlightenment purposes may be a surprise to some. Um, I went with soul. Uh, mm. Pixar's soul. I, I think the things this movie has to say about the value of life are deeper and more interesting than people give it credit for. Um, there is there are there are some really, really deep and interesting philosophical uh, meanderings going on in this movie under the guise of uh, comedy and animation. And um, it doesn't surprise me. I, you know, I could have gone with Inside Out for that matter. You know, like Pete Doctor just does this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but Soul, um, I think it can speak to that central core of of what it means to value life. Why is life valuable? What does it mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. I want to entertain because I'm assuming we're going to the big screen and I want to show people Untouchables. Um, yeah. Because even though I don't quote that as my favorite movie, it may be the most entertaining film I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for enlightenment, I'm going back to my bullshit uh, with Roma um, because mm. uh, that movie made me think about my life different and uh, maybe it could do the same for somebody else. Uh, I don't know. Um, over in the chat, we have Todd Haynes wonderstruck for both entertainment and enlightenment. I have not seen that movie, so mm. uh, I can't, I can't decide whether that's a good choice or not, but I'm going to assume that it is. Um, also, uh, Castro says everything, everywhere, all at once. That is a perfect choice. Yep, I have, fits I both. have obviously seen that movie and that does fit both. Um, uh, Nick says entertainment, dungeons and dragons, enlightenment zone of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, some good choices there in the chat as well. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, next week's movie is ruthless people. Once again, chat, thank you so much for coming out and watching us today. We love you guys for coming out. And oh, look at everybody doing the Taylor Swift hearts, except for me. I'll bow <laughs> out on that one. Um, but uh, but uh, that's going to do it for this week. We will see you next time. See you. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Be a part of the live show by being a member of the Sin Club at Patreon at patreon.com slash cinemasins. Chat with us on the CinemaSins Discord at discord.gg slash CinemaSins or CinemaSins Twitter at CinemaSins and email any comments or questions to recotopia at CinemaSins.com. That's R-E-C-O-T-O-P-I-A at CinemaSins.com.
as the Kool-Aid man would say, oh, yeah. Sounds a little bit like uh, uh, Savage. What's uh, Macho Man? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's jam. right. That's right. It does sound like that. I wonder if there's any connection whatsoever. Conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Macho Man Savage voiced the Kool-Aid man. There's something going on, something shady. Something shady. Why wouldn't they tell us that Randy Macho Man Savage voiced the Kool-Aid man? Huh, Chris? Why wouldn't they tell us that? They were they were covering up a deep, dark secret about mm-hmm. Flat Earth is what they were doing. It's probably true. Mm. Mm. I kind of want to back away from this, whatever <laughs> conversation you're having right now. That's so. not a shock. No. I'm just I think sure. everybody, I think all three of us are mm-hmm. slowly backing away. You could be talking mm-hmm. about so many different things. Like, I just walked in, you're like, conspiracy, you have no information, make up shit. Like, I, I had a dozen different things go through my head. <laughs> Was Taylor Swift one of them in yes. the, the Chiefs? Yeah. Not the yeah. Chiefs. No, I just read this article that she's suing the kid that tracks private planes, and that pissed me off. There's a kid that tracks private planes, which yeah. is publicly available information, and Correct. she is suing him. Um, because she doesn't like the fact that he points out that she's a hypocrite when it comes to climate change, and she flies her private jet around empty. Mm. Mm. So now between her and Justin Timberlake, I'm losing people that I like this week. You do have a really horrible situation, though, if you're Taylor Swift, right? Because you can't get somewhere quickly unless you fly a plane, and you can't get there. I mean, you have to. You would have to mix with the public if you decided to take right. an airplane, like go to the airport. And if you're at the airport, you're just going to cause a scene. I mean, you're seriously going to cause a scene at the yeah. airport. Yeah. So I, 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 think I agree sh- that there's some, there's, it's weird. I don't know what to say about it. Right. Like you, you, there's some things that I guess you have to do, even if you're against the sure, but like issue the, it the issue that I read about two weeks ago was that she was in New York and her jet was in Nashville and she flew her jet empty to New York so that she could then take it to Kansas City for a football game. Mm, The idea being she could have just rented another private jet in New York and flown to Kansas City. Right. There's a lot of frivolous, frivolous uh, travel. Yeah. So anyway, I just made a rule to my wife. We're not looking up to anybody anymore. Uh, Oh, no, you really shouldn't. It's a good rule. It's a very good rule. I think we're all hypocrites. I think every last one of us is a hypocrite in one way or another. And it's it's hard to it's hard to be. be consistent with our own selfish mo- motives and humanity and you all that kind of stuff. You can be a hypocrite on accident. You can be a hypocrite out of ignorance. I'm talking about like right. people being assholes. Like, mm. yeah, it's hard to find that line though. Like, you know, like where did where does look where does it cross over? Where does our own like humanity cross over into like intentional? You know, like there are some things you could. There are many things you could say where all three of us would be like, yeah. That person's terrible. That's a terrible decision that person made. But then it kind of like that needle starts to go down. And I just, I don't know. I think we all have a way of defining our own narratives. Well, I don't, I mean, that's, that's a slightly different point than the one I would make, but it's not a wrong point. I just, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody's all good or all evil. I think we're all great. Right. Uh, yeah. But you're talking a little bit more about language and narrative. And, and I think that's, we, we all see the world through our own. Like, it's impossible to see it through somebody else's eyes. We can only see the world through our eyes. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, the Timberlake thing bothers me, but I guess in his eyes, after the Britney memoir came out and he laid low for six months, 
he assumed that was done. And now that he's come up with new music and it's all blown up again, he seems pissy about it. And so from my perspective, I'm like, read the room. But from his perspective, I don't know how he's been feeling for the last six months because he was dragged over the coals for how Britney was treated after their relationship, in part because he made a song that seemed to be about her cheating on him. And I think you need to take responsibility for that. But it feels like some people want to punish him for the way the patriarchal media treated both of them after that relationship. And maybe he owns some of that too. Maybe all of us men do. But it's murky. murky, Well, and he also got away scot-free after the janet jackson thing too i mean it's just you know yeah he's gonna like do janet. a bunch of heinous shit and he would just be like ah again though is, is, is it his fault that janet's career was ended after that and his wasn't it's I'm not saying, his fault though okay. but he no. she's the only one who got in trouble for it and it's it That's is true. more about it is more about the gatekeepers or whatever you want to call it yeah. I hate the I, I hate the term gatekeeper now because it's been fucking co-opted by assholes. <laughs> um, um, every term eventually is. Every time, yeah. Every time there's a very like good word to use for something, like some dickhead faction <laughs> of the internet takes it, and suddenly it's because now when you say it, you sound like one of those dickheads. It pisses me off. Yes, but yes, the. Uh, the media at large at the time and whoever else back then is more responsible there. Yes. That's not a, that is not a uh, comment on Justin Timberlake. It's more of a comment on the media at large at that point. Yeah. So I can see it being tough for him because the first, there was that Britney documentary and then her memoir came out a couple of years later. And there's been like a two year cycle of people being mad at him. Some people being mad at him, uh, but again, I certainly don't know all the evidence, but I I don't remember much from back in the day that makes him the devil um, in terms of how he acted after they mm-hmm. broke up. I think the best we can say in those kind of situations is I hope I would have acted this way, right? Like, the, like if we think of ourselves in those terms and go, okay, if I was in that situation... I hope I would have stood up for this or or done this differently or those kind of things. I think we we get into a little bit of an issue with uh, blame. We all love we we love the idea of judgment or blame. The idea of like looking at someone's actions and going, mm. oh, here's how I morally paint those actions from this person instead of going, here's what I can learn from that. Here's how I'd be a better person. Um, mm. You know, that's that's the shift I try to make just because. There's so much there's so much judgment to pass around and I just don't have time to It just feels weird to me. Uh, I don't really I should stop talking. <laughs> it's a murky conversation. It's not really well, not really a single topic <laughs> happening here. It is, like, yeah. Uh, tan- tangentially to that, it, there's also the narrative that people come up with on their own outside sure. of what actually happens and everything yes. like Back in, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago it was, I still thought this way, you'd hear a celebrity say, well, this was taken out of context, or this was blah, 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 whatever. Now, Mm -hmm. I think 50% of the time, they're just saving face, but the other 50% of the time, these, there is an out of context situation going on that that somebody took a thing and then ran their own narrative with it. I just, Mm -hmm. I remember 
something i don't remember something in our past a few years ago whatever where somebody was like well it, uh apparently jeremy's just as bad a person behind the scenes as he is on his videos <laughs> and blah 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 and i was like where did you come up with that narrative i don't understand where that came from how did you does somebody did some, i i fear sometimes that we've interacted with somebody and we came off a certain way and then they came then they went but we haven't interacted with that many people. That's what kills me. And I'm just, I just wonder how, how far that goes when the more and more famous you become, like when you're mm -hmm. at Taylor Swift stage or whatever. Yeah, okay. So I've talked about this before, but I used to live in the town where she went to high school and you mm -hmm. ask anybody in that town that went to high school with her and they all have bad things to say. And I'm yeah. convinced it's because she's a super famous billionaire megastar <laughs> and they are not. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.